Father, we thank you again for gathering us in this place today. Uh, this is not by accident that any of us are here uh, to sing together, to hear uh, encouraging reports, uh, to encourage one another, and Lord, to hear your word. And now as we uh, re-venture ourselves back into your word, we pray for alertness. We pray that uh, you would be gracious to us, Lord, and give us ears to hear and that, Father, this would be a transformational moment, we pray, uh, for your kingdom and, and your sake and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we read the book of Romans, by the time Romans 12 rolls around in our reading, the Apostle Paul has already been describing and unfolding the mercies of God for 11 whole chapters. So that when we get to Romans 12.1, and we see that word therefore in the text, we know that that word connects backward to the 11 chapters that Paul has just written. Therefore, says Paul, so in other words, in light of all that I've just explained to you about God's mercies in the last 11 chapters, therefore, I urge you or I appeal to you in view of God's mercy, in view of all the glory about God's mercy that I've just outlined through 11 chapters, offer your bodies as Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable, says the Greek. This is your reasonable act of worship. Just as God called the brand new nation of Israel to be a nation of priests, in the days that followed after the Passover, when they were released from bondage in Egypt, so God calls his church to be a holy priesthood in the days after our Passover sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ, has been mercifully slain on our behalf. The nation of Israel in the days after the Exodus was to be a living sacrifice to God, a nation of priests to God, and the church after the days of the new Exodus that has come in Jesus Christ is likewise called to be a living sacrifice. The priestly role of the church to offer itself as a corporate living sacrifice to God, is its reasonable act of worship, its reasonable response to the great and the astonishing mercy and grace of God that has manifested itself in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul goes on in verse 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve 
what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Notice that opening phrase, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In his commentary on the book of Romans, Tom Holland says that another way to say do not conform to the patterns of the world is to say do not let the world mold you. Do not let the world mold you. Friends, the two basic options that the church has in every age are A, to be molded by the world, that is, to be molded by an entire system and philosophy that excludes God, that is anti-God, the world, or B, the church can be molded and shaped by the Spirit of God and His sword, which is the Word of God, the Bible even as the church lives within society. The call to nonconformity here in Romans 12, nonconformity, this call that we as the church of Jesus Christ would not conform to the world is more or less the same call that God gave to Israel just before they entered the land of Canaan. God was concerned that the people of Israel not conform to the ways and the values of Egypt, the nation that they had just left from, and also Canaan to which they were going. Leviticus 18.3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You see, God has always desired that his people be non-conformists. That we not embrace the ways and the values of the world, but rather that we embrace the ways and the values of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, this certainly does not mean, I want you to hear me well, this does not mean that we must separate from the world altogether. No, we must keep our place in culture and go on interacting with culture and even being enriched by culture to a certain extent. But God demands that we control the world's Influence, to use the words of Tom Holland again. Holland says, as the church, we are to reject what is base, crude, false, and unkind as part of our refusal to be molded by the world. Or, if you like, to use the imagery that D.L. Moody once used, The ship belongs in the water of the world. But if the water gets in the ship, it sinks. We have to control the creeping in and the influence of the water, so to speak. We have to beware of and curb the influence of the world. Let's go forward in the passage. 
Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, says Paul, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. The transformation or the metamorphosis that Paul envisions here in the careful words of John Stott This is a fundamental transformation of character and conduct. A fundamental transformation of character and conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. And the really fascinating thing in this part of Romans 12 too is the the fact that the phrase here transformed by the renewing of your mind, this phrase is cast in the plural in the original Greek. In other words, the idea is you all together need transformation by the renewing of your mind, but the word mind in the text is singular. The idea is this. Paul is addressing a group here called the church. He is saying here, be transformed entire church by the renewing of your corporate mind. Paul is not simply after individuals here, although he is, but he's after the church as a whole, the church corporately. He's calling the church corporate to renew its collective mind. Now, we need to get real here, church. We would be utterly naive to think that as the church today, we are somehow immune to the cultural waves and currents that are all around us. I would argue with some vigor that the invisible, powerful currents of culture have affected us as the church more than we even know. We would be foolish to think that the contemporary church is in no need of liberation from conformity to the patterns of the world. It would be foolhardy for us to ignore the urgency in this text of our need to be transformed right now by the renewing of our mind. Now, over these weeks, we've touched on the deep cultural currents of our day, things like consumerism and narcissistic individualism and moral relativism and materialism. Do we even know how much these things inform and direct the church in the current moment? Do we have at least some semblance of how enculturated we really are as Christ church in the West in 2019? Will we take seriously God's command to be transformed by the renewing of our mind? 
Well, as a way to close off this three-week series, I want to suggest seven characteristics of a renewed Christian mind. I want to give us a little sketch of what a renewed Christian mind might look like, to give us sort of a little portrait of the shape that such a mind might take. So these seven points, I want you to hear me well, these are certainly not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, You could easily add several other points to the seven that I will give you, but at least this will give us a sort of starting point uh, so that we can begin to see what a renewed and renewing Christian mind might look like. So here we go, seven characteristics of the Christian mind. First, the Christian mind has an accurate view of the Bible. In our thinking as the church, we must regain an accurate and appropriate view of the Bible. The Bible is God's authoritative, inspired, inerrant, clear, and sufficient revelation of himself and his intentions, his designs, his works, and his purposes. And the Bible is a public revelation. That is to say that divine revelation does not emanate out of the self or out of some inner voice like many other spiritualities may claim. Rather, in the pages of the Bible, divine revelation is given objectively, publicly, from outside of us, from God. And this means that the Bible is not a collection of human opinions. It is not a collection of human ideas. Rather, the Bible is God's declaration about himself, about us, about the world that he created. And the Bible declares to us that it's God's unfolding drama that is the most crucial thing. Our individual life stories are secondary under God's story. In the wise words of Mike Horton, God is not a supporting actor in our drama. It's the other way around. What else can we say about an accurate view of the Bible? The Bible, in the words of William Edgar, presents a coherent account of the world from creation to the new creation. And it does does so through a variety of genres, including narrative, poetry, apocalyptic, propositional, and prophetic. The Bible, in the words of Mark Knoll, provides a comprehensively true perspective on all things, a comprehensively true perspective on all things, even though, he says, it does not explain everything in the world directly. 
I wouldn't go to the Bible if I needed to know how to plumb out the toilet in my bathroom because I'm not going to find the information there. But the Bible gives a comprehensively true perspective on all things, even though it does not explain everything in the world directly. And the Bible's main subject, let's talk about the main subject of the Bible. In all of its 66 books, the main subject is Jesus Christ. And in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming of Jesus, God reveals the truth about all things in a way that would not otherwise be known. It's Jesus who is revealed in Scripture as being of supreme value in the universe. What else? The Bible is the standard given to the world by which the philosophies and ideologies and religions and programs and values and politics of the entire world are judged in every single generation. In the words of John Piper, what the Bible teaches is the truth, and it stands in judgment on all tradition and all science and all culture and all human opinion. The Bible diagnoses our actual and fundamental problem as human beings, which is, to borrow again the words of Mike Horton, the problem is that we stand naked and ashamed before a holy God and can only be acceptably clothed in his presence by being clothed head to toe in Christ's righteousness. Friends, the Bible is the truth, unchanging public truth, that applies to all peoples and all generations throughout time. Truth that corresponds to what actually is. Truth that is not subject to the private whims and opinions and counter-arguments of creatures like us. The Bible is authoritative in the church. It determines, says David Wells, how the church thinks, what the church wants, and how the church is going to go about its business. The Bible is fully sufficient for all of the church's challenges in a postmodern world. Do you believe that? And, friends, the Bible is eminently precious. The Bible is more to be desired than gold. And it is sweeter than honey. Again, in the words of John Piper, the Bible is worthy of a lifetime of assiduous reflection, heartfelt meditation, and joyful obedience. So our first characteristic of the Christian mind is that the Christian mind has an accurate view of the Bible. Secondly, as concerns the characteristics of the Christian mind, the Christian mind resists what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery. In other words, the Christian mind sees the folly in the position 
that anything new is to be preferred to anything that's old. As the church, we resist that popular anti-historical position. We resist the notion that simply because an idea is considered new, that it must be innately superior to an old or traditional idea. We reject that notion. In Carl Truman's book on the value of using the ancient Christian creeds and confessions in the contemporary church, he writes the following. He says, today the past is more often a source of embarrassment than a positive source of knowledge. And when the past is considered useful, it is usually as providing examples of what not to do or of a defective, less advanced thinking than of truth for the present. The Christian mind resists the farcical and arrogant idea that we are so much more sophisticated than the ancients were. We resist having an aversion to history and tradition like so many in the wider culture do. We are skeptical as the church about novelty. We are skeptical about novelty. As concerns life within the church, for example, we see, in the words of Jean Vaith, we see that the Christians of the past constitute a heritage of spirituality and insight that can be especially helpful for present-day Christians who struggle against anti-Christian ideas in a hostile, hostile cultural climate. And so this means that we happily dig out ancient creeds and confessions and the works of people like John Calvin and John Wesley and Athanasius and Irenaeus, and we get nourishment and we get correction, and we get help and encouragement from them. The Christian mind resists chronological snobbery, that only the new is to be preferred. The third characteristic of the Christian mind is that the Christian mind views all of life, all of life, in an integrated and coherent fashion. Our basic lens as thinking Christians through which we view absolutely everything that we ever encounter, the basic lens through which we integrate all of our experience is very simple. A, that there is a God who made us wonderfully good. B, we have rebelled and spoiled things. And C, God in grace and love holds out restoration and redemption to us in Jesus of Nazareth. That's our life lens. The lens of creation, fall, and redemption. That's the lens through which we see and evaluate all of life. Everything that we experience. The Christian mind comes to view all of life in an integrated and coherent fashion. Fourth, the Christian mind has a balanced view of human beings. Now, we touched on this point briefly 
last week. As thinking Christians, we perceive the human person and the human condition in a true way, in a balanced and clear-headed way that squares with what God has revealed to us about ourselves, and it also squares with the reality that we experience each and every day of our lives. In Blaise Pascal's very wise words, human beings are both great and they are wretched. And we must always hold the two aspects in balance. Here are some quotes from Blaise Pascal, who was writing back in the 17th century. He said, The more enlightened we are, the more greatness and vileness we discover in man. Pascal also said, It is dangerous to explain too clearly to man how like he is to the animals without pointing out his greatness. It is also dangerous to make too much of his greatness without his vileness. It is still more dangerous to leave him in ignorance of both but it is most valuable to represent both to him. And in another place, Pascal said, there are in faith two equally constant truths. One is that man in the state of his creation or in the state of grace is exalted above the whole of nature, made like unto God and sharing in his divinity. The other is that in the state of corruption and sin, he has fallen from that first state and has become like the beasts. And then finally, Pascal also wrote this. Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wretchedness. It must also account for such amazing contradictions. Friends, the Christian mind has a balanced view. It carries a balanced view every day of human beings, like Blaise Pascal did. The renewed mind in Jesus Christ will see the self, your own self, and will see other people as both great and wretched. That as human beings, we are made in the image of God, unlike any other creature has been, but we are also tarnished by sin and by evil. So that, as we look around, as human beings, we've been capable of producing great and noble beauty, haven't we? Like the Sistine Chapel, and like the symphonies of Beethoven, and like Herman Melville's great book, Moby Dick. But we have also, very capably as human beings, produced horrors like Auschwitz and Hiroshima, 
and the Rwandan genocide. In the words of Mark Knoll, as human beings, we are both noble and ignoble, beautiful and ugly, good and bad, upright and twisted. The Christian mind has a balanced view of human beings. And stemming from that point is our fifth characteristic of the Christian mind. Listen carefully. The Christian mind is cynical. You say, what, pastor? The Christian mind is cynical in a sober and healthy way. Again, the Christian mind is cynical in a sober and healthy way. That is to say, as Gene Vaith has said, that thinking Christians will, quote, remain skeptical about human beings, about society, and about ourselves. Thinking Christians are people who have no illusions about humanity, as we read our, our Bible. Thinking Christians have no illusions about humanity. For example, we fully own the fact Let's think about the church for a minute. We fully own the fact and we recognize that since the church is made up of human beings, you will indeed find hypocritical, clumsy sinners in the church. No surprise there. People who excuse themselves from participating in a local church with the excuse that there are too many hypocrites in the church should be affirmed in their assessment and asked to come and join us anyhow. We say yes. Since the church is a company of recovering sinners, there are indeed a great number of hypocrites to be found in the church. So come Join us, add one more hypocrite to the flock. <laughs> Thinking Christians have no illusions about people. And friends, this point also applies to how we view the very popular sentiment in culture that we are progressing as a human society or that we can progress on our own steam and with our own ingenuity and with our abilities. Thinking Christians are very skeptical about that idea. In fact, they find that particular idea of progress to be totally fraudulent and a complete and utter delusion. Why? Because all we have to do is review the past 105 years to see that so-called progressive thinkers produced two horrific, savage world wars that killed over 86 million people. The truth of the matter is that we just can't control ourselves as human beings. The Catholic Archbishop of Philadelphia, Charles Chaput, 
has written that the idea of progress is a heartwarming delusion. But that's all it is, a delusion. He argues, in fact, that clinging to a belief in progress is a product of despair. Yes, clinging to a belief in progress is a product of despair. See, every person has at least some nagging inkling that we live in a very flawed and very often scary world. And so what people do with that, says Chaput, is they shift the burden of living in such a flawed world to this positive force called progress that supposedly will bring about the change that we want someday, but it's all a delusion. Evidence suggests, incontrovertibly it suggests, that we are not progressing as a human society, but yet many people still cling to that very popular delusion of progress because perhaps the alternative is too terrifying. Thinking Christians have no illusions in this regard. We develop a healthy and sober cynicism about people, including ourselves, and we shift the burden not to an idea of human progress, but to Jesus Christ. We magnify and we exalt Jesus. He is the one who alone holds the power to make real progress happen. And he will one day undertake and and complete the massive renovation of our reality that he has promised in his word. Friends, we know, don't we, that this age is dying. It is sunset for the old age of the world. It is passing away. And in Jesus Christ, the sunrise of the new age has already begun. And when he comes again, that's when we are going to see real and actual progress in a way that will absolutely take our breath away. Again, the fifth characteristic of the Christian mind is that the Christian mind is cynical in a sober and in a healthy way. In sixth place, we have this. As concerns evangelism, very important to us, as concerns evangelism, the Christian mind values the place of reason and thinking. Now, what I think is a pretty helpful illustration here is given to us, again, by John Piper in his book, Think, the Life of the Mind and the Love of God. Piper talks about a wire with electricity running through it. So just think of that, a wire with electricity running through the wire. The electricity or the power in evangelism, the power to convert people to Jesus, is, of course, the Holy Spirit himself. But the wire 
in evangelism, along which the power of the Spirit runs, is our logical, rational, ordered, reasoned, knowledgeable presentation of gospel truth. Friends, we must never set the power of the Holy Spirit in evangelism as as somehow at odds with our reasoned presentation of the gospel. I will be the first one to say that all by themselves, our arguments will never be sufficient to convert a person to Jesus. But that does not mean that our arguments and presentations in evangelism are unnecessary. Concerning the wire with electricity illustration, Piper says this, there is no glimpsing of Christ, glimpsing of Christ, without the electricity of supernatural illumination. And there is no glimpsing without the human wire of thoughtful proclamation. So again, it's not an either-or scenario. Either the spirit or reasoned human presentations. of the It's not either-or, it's both-and. Holy Spirit and reasoned arguments. And so we have the biblical example of the Apostle Paul, don't we? In Acts chapter 17 through 19, we have a number of occurrences of words like reasoning and explaining. These words describe what Paul was doing in his attempts to evangelize people. So Acts 17.2 In the Thessalonian synagogue, Paul reasoned with the Jewish people, explaining and proving to them that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul is the wire. He uses his intellect and his knowledge and his reasoning and his mind in an effort to win converts while the spirit is the power that runs through the wire and accomplishes the conversions. Acts 17.17, again, Paul reasoned, it says in the text, with the Jewish people in the Athens synagogue. Acts 18.4, Paul reasoned with people also in the Corinthian synagogue and reasoned also with people in the synagogue in Ephesus in Acts 18.19. In Acts 19, 8, and 9, we're told yet again that Paul's strategy was to reason with people in the Ephesus synagogue and also in the hall of Tyrannus to persuade them concerning the kingdom of God. So that Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. John Stott says, to persuade is an intellectual exercise. To persuade is to marshal arguments in order to prevail on people to change their mind about something. Again, our sixth characteristic of the Christian mind is that as concerns evangelism, the Christian mind values the place of reasoning and thinking. 
I think an excellent summary of what should be happening in our efforts at evangelism is given by John Stott again, who says this. This is a great summary. We shall argue with a person's mind and plead with a person's heart in order to move his will, and we shall put our trust in the Holy Spirit throughout. I think that's an excellent summary. Well, our seventh and final characteristic this morning of the Christian mind can be put this way. The Christian mind thinks to the glory of God. That is, whatever knowledge we have, whatever thinking we do, whatever intellectual endeavors we undertake, it should all necessarily lead us to the worship of God, to an increase of wonder and awe in Almighty God. The Christian mind, friends, is a devotional mind. It thinks to the glory of God because whether we are thinking about nature and sciences or history or economics or art or folding the laundry or construction or literature or what we're going to eat or the moment of our dying, Whatever we think about in some way connects to God and the glory of God because Colossians 1 says, as we saw last week, that he is Lord of how many things? All. All things. There's nothing in your life that he's not Lord of. The Christian mind thinks to the glory of God. Very quickly, to review our seven characteristics of the Christian mind. The Christian mind has an accurate view of the Bible. Second, the Christian mind resists chronological snobbery. Third, the Christian mind comes to view all of life in an integrated and coherent fashion. Fourth, the Christian mind has a balanced view of human beings. Fifth, the Christian mind is cynical in a sober and healthy way. Sixth, as concerns evangelism, the Christian mind values the place of reason and thinking. And seventh, the Christian mind thinks to the glory of God. I trust that these three weeks that we've spent on the importance of the Christian mind and on cultivating the Christian mind and this morning on the characteristics of the Christian mind, I trust that these weeks have been at least somewhat helpful to you. And I pray that God will continue to use his word to make us nonconformists to the world and to transform us as his church by the renewal of our mind for his glory and for the benefit of our neighbors. Which clings so closely, may you run with endurance the race set before you, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.